Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. I think they like you, Hanya. Yeah? Well, I just, I just want to say it's such a pleasure to be back here. I was here six years ago, and when I was here six years ago, Michael had said, you know, that writers come here on the way up and then the second time on the way down. <laughs> so it's great to be back and, uh, in this beautiful hall and, and with all of you. This is my favorite writers' festival, and I'm so honored to be here and with Anton, so thank you. And could I say congratulations, everyone. You've made it to the end of a six-week election campaign. It is so lovely to be spending the eve of the election here with you, uh, bearing in mind that tomorrow is going to be a very, very big uh, reporting day for, for us working in the media. Um, I'm just going to do the introduction anyway. You all know who this is, but I'm just going to tell you anyway. Our guest is now firmly entrenched as a major force in the literary world. She's the author of three novels, including the unforgettable A Little Life, shortlisted in the UK for the Man Booker Prize and in the US for the National Book Award and the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Fiction, among many other shortlistings. And now To Paradise, an ambitious novel that reaches into the past and imagines a terrible future. We are so delighted that she's here in person. Please welcome Hanya Yanagihara. Thanks, So, Hania, it's almost impossible to think of you without thinking of a, good li a little life as a kind of starting point. Um, I use the term unforgettable, which I think it really was, but it's also, you could say, um, searing, um, dark, traumatizing, um, at times unbearable, um, but unforgettable. And I think it's true to say that you do make your reader work a little, have a bit of stamina in order to get the value out of the novel. I feel I can just leave now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I, I do think that readers should be asked to work. And I always say that it's, it's a great act of vulnerability to be a reader, to open a book, and to go where the author takes you. And I think, you know, I certainly feel this as a reader myself. You want, that, you want the author to ask something of you, to demand something of you. And when I was working on, on, on that book, and again with To Paradise, I always have the sense that the only stories we know are the stories we've been told. And so a life that feels impossible or improbable is only a life that we actually haven't heard about before. And I think for all of the books I've written, I hope that they ask readers to follow me um, into the life of, of someone whose existence seems impossible. And I think if there's something that unites the three books, it's that. It's one of those. It, it, that's one of the qualities. Um, it's got all those dark emotions, but there's also a lot of love. There was a lot of support. There was a lot of friendship in that book, which is so a lot of uplifting elements as well. So it wasn't all dark, I think. Uh, sometimes you get the impression that when you think of the novel, you think of certain things. Um, but when you're dealing with such really fundamental and deep emotions, 
What is it like when you're writing that stuff? How to kind of fully immerse yourself into it? You know, I okay. So this is I'm going to kind of back into the question. I I I don't know if any of you know that there's actually a stage version of the play um, directed by Eva Van Hova, who's the most famous avant-garde theater director in the world, if you know one can say something like that. And I had seen the production once in Dutch in Amsterdam, and I recently saw it again in the live stream. And I, I had not, um, it was a very difficult experience for me both times. And I realized that it was because when I watched it, 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 watching the play was inseparable from my memories of writing the book. While I was writing the book, it did not seem particularly difficult. It was um, exhilarating at times, I think, as anyone who's a writer knows. There's certain moments when you really have wind in your sails, and it doesn't matter what the subject is. If you're lucky enough to be able to sort of catch that moment, you just try to ride it out for as long as you can. But after the book was finished, there was a long hangover of, of what I can now see was, was a kind of depression. But, but in, in the moment of writing, in the 18 months it took to write, it was ecstatic often. And I think the same with this book too, um, which I know we'll talk about. But 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 the life of the book is is it, it, the content of the book, um, for me at least, does not particularly dictate my emotions. So, having had this incredible success with um, your first, your second novel, um, when you're sitting down to think about what you're going to do next, how much of an effect does that have that this novel has made such a huge impression? I just knew that whatever I did next would not be a repeat. And I, you know, I always think that, I mean, to use a sports metaphor, and this is the only sports metaphor I know, you know, that you should always, as an artist, take a big swing. It should feel hard. It should feel ambitious, and you should be trying to tear it down and build it anew. So I knew that whatever I did next would feel very different. Um, not just because I think... At first I thought it's too easy to try to replicate um, a, a, an easy, a form... of you know, an earlier book, but it's actually harder because when you're writing anything or you're making any kind of art, it has to feel urgent and it has to feel like something uh, only you can say. And so if you can do it again, it means you didn't leave everything on the floor the first time. And so it was really about thinking, and I'm in this period now, I haven't written anything since I, I finished To Paradise. It's, it's really, for me at least, a years-long process of trying to figure out what I want to say and being alert to the story as it announces itself. When I've said to my friends that you know, I'm reading this book, the first thing they said to me, is it like yeah. a little life? Um, it is not anything like it. It's a very different kind of conceptually uh, con conceived novel, um, very different from the other novel. Um, the starting point is um, a New York City that we walk into in a kind of, with a kind of Henry James sensibility, um, with a family of great entitlement and status. But the society that we enter has a kind of twist to the moral convention. Will you describe to us the, the New York City that we walk into? Yeah, but first I want to say, I mean, not to... Um you know, to contradict your friends. I think the books are actually similar in key ways. 
I think they're, they're fundamentally about emotional lives. The canvas is much different in this book. Um, but ultimately, you know, they are about the, the, the complicated lives of people who feel that they don't quite fit into their society and they don't quite understand the terms of love and that they are racked with shame. I think that's one similarity. Um, I, I think the second thing is it talks about different lives, um, the lives that are not necessarily recognized or respected or encouraged by society. I think it has that in common. And the third thing is, I think this book and A Little Life are both fundamentally against history, by which I mean, you know, A Little Life was set in a sort of fairy tale netherworld. You know, it was meant to be in the make the rear feel like she was in a state of perpetual present tense. Uh, there were no dates, there were no uh, major historical events, there was really nothing to date it other than what the reader thought it might be. And so I've had readers who thought it was set in the future, I've had readers who thought it was set in the 90s. It, 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 it sort of, whatever your emotional set point was, when you felt like Jude, that was when the book was set for the reader. This book is against history in a different way, obviously. It takes the facts of American history and, and it tries to subvert them. And in the first part of the book, I just have to ask a question here because I've been asking this. Who here's read Henry James? Oh, wow. See, this is a lot of people. See, in the UK, no one had. And um, I mean, I guess they just don't like books by the colonies, but, you know, they have their own people to read. But even in America, people don't read Henry James as much. I mean, I'm 47. I read it when I was in school. But younger people, I don't think, read him. So Washington Square um, was his least favorite book. He later turned against it. It's a novella, uh, and it's a very simple story, a very modern story, about a young woman named Catherine Sloper who lives with her father, who's Dr. Sloper. She's an heiress, and she falls in love with um, a man who is probably a grifter, and he uh, gives her a choice. You know, you lose your inheritance if, if, you, if you go away with him. And the thing that I found so... Um, arresting about the book when I first read it as a teenager was that in an age of great sentimental fiction, so this is at the end of the 19th century, James created a character in Dr. Sloper, a parent um, whose love was not inviolable for his child. He's a quite cruel character. And the suggestion that a parent wouldn't necessarily love a child, I think, was, was quite startling to me in the context of 19th century fiction. So the first part of this book is a retelling or a reframing in a way of James's Washington Square. Uh, and, you know, people always say, well, it's fundamentally about an America in which people are gay. And that is to some extent true, but it's really about an America that is not founded on Puritanism. So New York in this book is part of a, a coalition of states called the Free States, um, which is a breakaway group of people from the American South. Uh, who who have a different kind of conception of, of what the country should be. And of course, if you take Puritanism out of America, which is a very severe form of Christianity, you automatically change um, the country's ideas about love and the country's ideas about gender. The country's ideas about race remain the same, however. Um, and, and, you know, I'd always wanted to write a marriage novel um, because all the best novels throughout not just Western history but many other cultures are marriage novels fundamentally. And all marriage novels are about money. And they're specifically about how much money the woman has or she can marry into, and that dictates her choices. And I thought, if you took that element, that element of gender, 
out of the marriage story, what would the marriage story be? Uh, and, and that was how the, the first part began. And in fact, the, well, that ends in tears, of course, which is not commenting on how yours ends. You're going to have to read that for yourself to find out. Um, but those layers of intersectionality, I think, certainly make an impression here as well. Um, the, the sense of who fits in and who doesn't fit in, I thought, also was quite uh, striking. Um, we're not sure, certainly when I was reading it, not sure who's playing whom, who's the villain. It seems, honey, you're creating a bit of a conundrum here for for the reader to, to work out? You know, I mean, I, I think that just like James's book, and, and I, I hope the first part of this book, and, and many, many books throughout American history, uh, you know, uh, to be an American is ultimately to be a performer. You know, you, you play it being rich, you play it being successful, you play it belonging. It's one of the main themes throughout modern American uh, literature. And it's certainly one of the, the questions that I hope this book asks. You know, if you play the role well enough, if you can be convincing enough, um, is that really what America's founded on? Um, you say you take gender out of uh, marriage and creates a completely different concept of it. It seems to me family is also a very strong element in um, certainly this section of the, of the novel. Um, but you're defining it in different ways, not necessarily by blood, not necessarily by love, sometimes by conflict. Um, what comes to mind for you when you think about writing about family? Well, you know, I, I am not personally that interested in, in, in the idea of family. I mean, there's a reason, or, or conventional family, there's a reason it's endured and every society is built upon it. Um, but I, I think those of us who gravitate to, towards cities are often people who have decided that that the conventional family structure doesn't work for us in one way or another. And so you're right, in each of the three sections of the book, there's not only a different conception of family um, in, in the first book, because the citizens who of the free states who are gay, they don't have surrogacy back then, um, form their families through adoption. Uh, and, and so the idea of, of a unit being bound by blood is not, um, is, is not the primary definition of family in this book. But the other thing that I think that this book challenges, and I think a little life as well, and the first, my first book as well, although in a more grotesque way, is, is the idea of parenthood. And uh, I think one of the things that I hope this book does is suggest that sometimes parenthood is simply an older person taking care of a younger person, and nothing more than that. And so a parental relationship can exist within any relationship in which you have an intergenerational friendship, let's say. And those of you, of course, who remember A Little Life, uh, we will know that there's quite a strong family uh, connection. The love that exists within those connections, sometimes defined by blood, sometimes by adoptive families, sometimes by friendship. But it seems to me some of the um, sort of insider-outsider concepts within this part of the novel apply um, as much to the sort of social standing of the, the main sort of Bingham family, but also to the free states, as you call it, compared to the sort of where some characters end up later in the far west. Well, yes, and you know, I mean, America is a very conservative country in many, many ways. And so in the free states, which, you know, basically New England um, and, and New York State are a part of, there are all sorts of different challenges to beloved, um, uh, you know, societal structures and conventions. Um, but outside of the sort of, um, 
heaven of this, of this coalition of states, things deteriorate quite quickly. On the other hand, you know, I think that when you have a country as varied in customs and in cultures as America, you do have very different interpretations often of, of you know, of romance, of family, of law, of, of society, and it's, it's dangerous for different groups of people in different parts of the country. Um, I'm just going to sort of jump across to different parts of the book. Um, um, the section on Hawaii um, encompasses also elements of family, drama, class, status, and so on, a search for identity. Um, but the history of the, of the kingdom of Hawaii um, kind of hovers over all of this like, like a character. You have a direct family connection to um, Hawaii um, through your father. Was, was that personal history the kind of the main impetus for writing about it, or did it come from somewhere else? Yes and no. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a fourth-generation Hawaii resident. I'm not of Hawaiian blood. And one of the things you realize as an Asian when you move away from Hawaii is that, you know, although most Asians... Um, who, you know, I'm a fourth-generation American, which, you know, doesn't sound that, that old, but, but you're a young country, you'll understand that that's actually quite a long time to be, to be in America. So my ancestors came over in the late 19th century. And although most of us came over as um, plantation workers in some way, you know, my parents were the last generation, um, or I'm the first generation to not work in the cannery or not work in the field to some extent. Um, but when you go away from Hawaii, you realize that, you know, you have been living on, um, on, on the ground of somebody else. Uh, and it's one of, I think, the first important revelations that uh, I think Asians have when, when, when they move away. So my father had come of age um, it, it, during the 60s, and that was really the start of the first um, modern wave of the Hawaiian sovereignty movement. And so he and my mother have always been very sympathetic um, to the idea of a nation within a nation or a state within a state. I mean, I know these ideas are resonant here. And this is not a fringe position. You know, my parents are in their 70s and they still believe it. But I think for all of us who are, are living on, on, on not just native land, but land where you see um, viscerally and daily uh, what, what immigration and colonization has done, uh, you you can't not grapple with it in some way, and it's a very and I I'm, I don't even um, you know this the, but the book is really about this part of the book is really about this imaginary homeland as you know Salman Rushdie would say, trying to recreate a lost civilization, a lost paradise, um, a vision of what might have um, endured had it not been changed and taken over. Honey, a question that everyone from a migrant heritage asks themselves about um, whether you're an insider or an outsider, and I've, I'm a migrant myself in this country. It's, it's a, a concept that kind of hangs over me. Um, you have sort of generational history with Hawaii. We think of you as a New Yorker. Uh, you're not ethnically Hawaii. So when you're writing about Hawaii, are you writing as an insider or an outsider? Definitely an outsider. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I love Hawaii. It's, um, it's, it's, it, it, the culture is so beautiful. The language is so beautiful. Due to the efforts of, of, of contemporary scholars, the language itself has come back. 
Um, I was saying to Andy Park before I, I taped his radio show that it's been one of the great successes of, of the Hawaiian rights and education movement, that you can walk down the street in Honolulu and you can hear people speak Hawaiian um, to each other. That was not true when I was, when I was a child there. But, uh, you know, as, as much as you may feel that you are a part of it, and you are to some extent, you, you aren't really. It's, it's amazing for those of us, certainly myself, who knows next to nothing about Hawaiian history, is that it all happened fairly recently. Yes. It was almost right into the 20th century um, when the, the, the overthrow of the last monarch, Queen Liliu Kalani, was 1893, which sort of <laughs> lines up quite nicely with, uh, with the structure of your novel. And I also couldn't help noticing, Hania, that a lot of the names that come up several places in the, in the novel, uh, like the Binghams and the Bishops and the Griffiths, are also missionary, the names of prominent missionaries in, the, in, the, um, in Hawaii. Um, so I feel like, once again, you're creating a bit of a conundrum for your reader, aren't you? I think, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. The book begins in 1893, which was intentional. It was the year that the, the final queen of Hawaii, Liliu Kolani, was overthrown. And in 1898, the, the, the country was annexed um, uh, by the United States. And, and, and as you said, the last names of all the characters, major characters, are the names of, um, of, uh, of prominent um, Christian missionary families who came to the kingdom in the 19th century. And I do think that this book, um, I hope to some extent, is, well, first of all, I, I think it's very personal. If you grew up in the kind of America I grew up in, you will see things that you won't if you grew up in a different America. And of course, the joke is that there are 330 million different Americas. So I hope that you can read the book and enjoy it on one level. But if you, say, grew up in Hawaii, if you know a little something about Hawaii, recent Hawaiian history, if you know a little something about America's um, imperialist adventures in, in the Pacific, which I, I don't know if it's taught that much. I learned it, of course, because I was in Hawaii, but my friends who grew up in the East Coast did not hear as much about it. Um, so depending on the kind of America you grew up in and the kind of American experience you had, you will see or miss different things in the book. So w when we meet the, like the Bingham family in Washington Square in the early part of the novel, and then we meet this um, young prince and the, 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 off, the offshoots of the, uh, the matriarch in Hawaii, and later um, the family in, uh, the, in the futuristic uh, New York, it seems to me that the outsider-insider concept is coming up again. And for you, is it clearly an interest for you that there's some people who are insiders, but they're really outsiders and they can never be true insiders? Well, I think there's two ways to feel like an outsider in America or in any country, but we'll just talk about America. There's the people who are systemic outsiders, you know, people who are neglected or have been traditionally neglected from both the government and from history books because of their gender or their race or their abilities or their education and so on and so forth. So there's that kind of way of being an outsider. And then there's the way of being an outsider that is perhaps not systemic, but much more personal, that you feel that for whatever variety of reasons, you don't quite fit into maybe a very large unit, your school or your community, or a very small unit, your family, let's say. And so you could argue that every country is made up of you know, millions of outsiders. 
the differences, of course, some people have a platform, um, you know, uh, from which to, uh, to, to gain some sort of semblance of power and some people don't. The other thing that sort of sprang up at me in the Hawaiian section is that we discovered this little piece of paradise that's owned by the, the family, this royal family. But at the same time, it's kind of quite a horrific experience as well for the people involved. So it's kind of, it's paradise, but it's hell at the same time. Well, you know, I mean, the original concept of paradise, you know, is a walled garden and, the, and a garden is supposed to keep people out. So this idea that, you know, a, a paradise is supposed to be welcoming, it belies the entire conception of what a paradise is, and B, that you can build a paradise. Um, it's, it, it seems to me that it's something that is bestowed upon humans or it's organic, but once humans try to create it for themselves, something goes horribly wrong. Okay, so the, the third part of the novel, the three main sections of the novel set in 1893, 1993, and then 2093, it's set in a sort of future version of New York City that is ravaged by an unnamed virus, not monkeypox, by the way, <laughs> and by climate change, a not implausible scenario based on the way we're going in the world at the moment. Um, but from what I gather, you were actually writing this before the world was plunged into its latest viral adventure, uh, COVID-19. It must have been a little bit weird writing about that while things were happening? So, yes, I started researching the third part of the book, the pandemic part of the book, in 20... I always forget, 2017 it must have been. And there's um, a university in Manhattan called Rockefeller University, which is a natural, a biological sciences postgraduate university, and I went and talked to um, some PhDs and postdocs and also this one sort of terrifying French virologist who, you know, eagerly predicted that something was coming um, <laughs> because he said America spent too much money researching cancer and not enough money researching viruses. And, uh, but, but when it actually started happening, and I was sent home from the office on March 13th of 2020, I was about halfway through that part of the book. And it always sounds like a lie when I say this, but it, it didn't... Um, it, it did not feel in any way like, you know, art was imitating life or life was imitating art. It didn't feel eerie to me because, you know, in the outside world as a citizen, I was as clueless as anybody else. I had no idea what was going on. But within the world of, of the book, when you're, when you're the author and at that point in the project, you really are God. And so it, it felt very reassuring. I think I was probably given a false sense of of empowerment and confidence that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And the pandemics in this part of the book are much worse than what we were enduring. Um, they, this, the people in this part of the book are living in an age of rolling pandemics. Um, they're living in an age of intense, not just climate disaster, because I think we're already there, but the aftermath of climate disaster. And so in a way, you know, because the volume has turned so much higher, up so much higher in this part of the book, it, it didn't feel um, like anything um, like what we were experiencing. So for the five of you who don't know this, uh, Hania is also happens to be the editor-in-chief of the New York Times style magazine, T. Um, that raised two concerns for me. First... <laughs> What could I possibly wear on an occasion like this that would be worthy? So, Hania, how did I do? You did a great job. You did a great job. I noticed right away. 
I like the, the power clashing with the socks and the shirt. Yeah. It takes real confidence to do that. It's not a backhanded did, compliment. It was a real compliment. I'm, I must admit, I did approach the network stylist, and she said, go bold. So that's what that's I always did. The right, that's always the right answer. So um, that raises, I said, two concerns. The other one, of course, was how on earth do you hold down an all-consuming job like that while writing a novel that is that size? Well, unlike you, I, I don't cover breaking news. So, you know, the, the magazine comes out, I know tea exists here as well. Uh, it, the magazine comes out 11 times a year. I know exactly when it's coming out. Um, I'm very organized and we can get a lot of it done in advance. And so the disasters, when they happen, even the disasters are fairly predictable disasters. You know, every, <clears throat> every so often a shoot falls through or something gets canceled. But, you know, I've, I work with very smart people who are good at what they do and we're able to figure a way around it. The second thing is, I don't, again, unlike you, I don't work on deadlines. So I don't, I didn't have a contract for this book. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have anything looming over me. It just takes as long as it takes. And... Um, and I had the gift of time during the pandemic. I mean, I wouldn't have finished uh, at the end of 2020 had I not, you know, I, I think all of us have realized this. You, you gain an hour every day not going back and forth to the office. You gain, in, you know, a few hours a week not having dinner. You gain hours not going to the theater. There was suddenly a lot of found time. And I think for many creative people, they really were very um, hard on themselves because... I was very lucky that I was midstream with the project, but I think many people thought they should have been starting a project, and I think that was probably too much to ask um, during the pandemic. Um, I'm asking you a couple of process questions now because I always leave them to the end. We always run out of time, so I kind of stuck them down in the middle. Um, before the pandemic started, I mean, it's, it, you say you're good at time management, but that you'd have to have superhero you know, abilities to be able to do that kind of job and write quite disciplinedly, when, at which time of day, what is your process for keeping that discipline going? I, I actually don't. You know, I'm actually a, I'm a fairly lazy person. I've been reading a lot about wombats <laughs> because I'm going to go encounter one tomorrow. And there's a lot of similarities, you know, but um, not the cubic poop, but other things. But uh, I write at night. And I don't go out a lot. So, you know, I, I do go to the theater. That's, that's one consistent way I, I, I go out. I do go out to dinner, but not that often. And so ideally I'll write between about nine and, and midnight and I'll write a lot on the weekends. But I think for those people who have creative lives and, and have a day job, first of all, whenever you're procrastinating, you're getting something done. You're either working on the day job or you're working on, uh, you know, on, um, on, on your creative project or your cleaning. So either way, something's getting done, you know? Uh, so that's the first thing. So some, it, you are sort of moving forward in all, in all phases of life. You know, second, I don't have a family. And I think that that, I'm not saying that for those of you who have a job and a creative life that having a family is, is a deal breaker, but it means that you have to be very jealous about, about your time. And when you have less of it, you learn how to use it more intensely. At least that's what I found. And in a lot of, I think, when you're, when you're doing two things, 
a lot of it is just lying to yourself, frankly. You know, I mean, I am not naturally a disciplined person. It is tricking yourself. It's giving yourself rewards. It's giving yourself punishments. All of those sort of, you know, um, punitive things that you learn from your parents or your teachers about getting getting the work done come back and you and you learn to use them for your own for your own purposes. I was in a session earlier today with the, the acclaimed Australian writer Chloe Hooper, uh, who's got two little boys, and I, w- I was asking her a question about the magical, you know, transition from day to night and bedtime stories and so on, and she said it's mainly about just getting them to sleep so that she can write. <laughs> I also read somewhere, Hania, that you're a swimmer. Um, I also, I swim sometimes, I run, I find it quite good for thinking about the world and sort of without somebody speaking to me, I can just kind of analyze things. Could you describe to us how you solve problems uh, in your writing when you're swimming? I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it, the best way to write is by being in movement. When I was writing A Little Life, I used to work in Times Square and I would take the bus. And it, it's, a great, uh, it's a great way to write. You just sort of let your mind wander. You kind of feel the movement. So it's not just, you know, like being in a void, like when you're on an airplane. And um, I I often say to young writers who haven't asked that, you know, so much of writing begins when you realize that all of this sort of flotsam that you're carrying around in your head actually has some kind of connection. That's when it begins. But in order for you to realize that, you have to, in in a way, um, indulge in a kind of um, active daydreaming. Um, and, and it is a lot of wandering. Um, the, the, we recently did an issue of Tea about artists and creativity, and um, the, the um, 80-something um, uh, abstract, American abstract painter, MacArthur Binion, said, you have to be patient and let the king come to you, which I thought was a really wonderful way of putting it. Okay, back to the novel. So we sort of progressed now to New York City of 2093, um, which we find to be quite a sinister, brutal place in which people who don't obey the fascist regime simply disappear. Um, it's a kind of scenario we sometimes associate with kind of faraway places, maybe third world dictatorship or so on. But um, you've placed it right in the United States, land of the free, the home of the brave. What do you think you were kind of going through or seeing that made it possible for you to see this kind of scenario so soon into the future? Gee, I wonder. I mean, I wonder... <laughs> Is that an easy question? I, I wonder what I was experiencing. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, you know, I always say, listen, I mean, America is a very, is a very young country. I've said this before, and, 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 and I always marvel at it when you're an American and you travel and you realize... Um, that the same qualities that make us so appealing to other people are the same qualities that make us so irritating to other people, and that we have a very different conception of time. We can't look into our past and say, well, something like this happened 500 years ago, and this is what happened. Everything seems like you're in perpetual disaster. And I think that one of the, you know, the great questions that, well, we're having a, a few great questions, but in the last 20 years, America has had two periods, one right after 9-11 and, and most recently with COVID, in which certain liberties or freedoms were taken away or questioned um, in the name of national safety or security. And I, I'm not saying that those were all bad decisions in the moment. The, the, 
But the problem is you just don't know. You know, I mean, I think it's only now, 20 years after 9-11, that, that, that there's been a broad-scale conversation about, um, about things like the Patriot Act, I mean, which obviously people had had conversations about all the time. But I think a real reckoning about what was taken away and how much can, how much should a democracy and a free country um, do in order to protect itself? Um, and, and, and what happens if it doesn't? And I think when you are a young country that's in constant flux, and again, this is the promise of America and the thrill of America. You feel that you are in a palimpsest country, that things are being rewritten all the time, including your history. I think that, that there is this, this sense of um, sort of immediate rewriting. And, um, and, and you could see very easily how things could, could go in a quite different direction. What do you think about what's happening in the United States at the moment? We see with Roe v. Wade, with, uh, you know, uh, books being banned in schools and so on, and even talk in, in some states of outlawing contraception. I mean, it's quite, it's quite scary, I think, for watching from afar. I mean, I think the, the first thing that people forget is America is a very religious country. It is... It, it often doesn't look like that, and I think that it is easy to forget because it was founded on the promise of religious freedom. But the kind of religious freedom it was founded on was still—it still assumed a kind of Christianity. It wasn't—it wasn't, you know, like well, you can go off and, and be a Zen Buddhist. There, that there simply wasn't a conception of of such an idea back then. But you, you know, again, one of the thrilling and one of the the really scary things about about being in America and um, it is. I think something that I tried to capture in this book. And in the third part of the book, to me, what ended up being predictive was not the virus. It was the conversation that we're having on a very large national scale about how we conceive of America. Have we considered its history correctly? Who got to write it? Who got to be included in it? Has our idea, has our idea of American history and American mythology been wrong all along? Now again, if you were, you know, a capital O outsider in America, someone who was excluded from those systems, you've always known you were an outsider. You never had access to be written to the history books. You didn't have a voice within the government. So I think what has changed in the past, you know, four years with, with the arrival of Trump is, I think, a real um, revelation of how differently um, and profoundly differently Americans have 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 conceived of this of our country. Okay, into the, the scenario, we have a character called Charlie. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about Charlie, who um, is very compliant, very sort of um, peaceful and obedient. But she has a grandfather, which kind of puts her into a category where, even though she's trying to be this ultimate insider, she can never be. So Charlie, who's one of the narrators of the third book, is, is a lab tech at Rockefeller University. And it's revealed that her, her grandfather, who was a powerful scientist in the early days of these rolling pandemics, um, and, and later becomes a cooperator with the state um, and, and her protector, her great protector, for as long as he's alive, um, it, you know, but is someone who is complicit in certain kinds of, of crimes. And I've always been interested in, you know, we throw around the phrase being on the wrong side of history a lot. And sometimes it's very clear when somebody's on the wrong side of history. 
but usually it's not. And in, in, in Charlie's grandfather, Charles, um, I, I wanted to make a character who acted, he's a little callous, he's a little callow, but he acts ultimately, he takes, he makes certain bargains and he makes bargains based on national safety and what he thinks is the right thing in that moment. He makes, he makes decisions for the society. Um, and when he realizes he's created a society in which his granddaughter, who is damaged in certain ways, will not have an opportunity to, su to succeed, he not only lives with great regret, but starts to think about how he might save her. And it is one of the central struggles in this book that when an architect of any sort of power system realizes that they are personally affected, they are often um, bound by the laws that they created. <coughs> um, we've allowed some time for questions, so if you do have a question, we have a <coughs> flight attendant there, there, and up there in the corners. So if you could make your way in that direction. Um, let me ask you this in the meantime while people are thinking about that. Um, for obvious reasons, we can't talk about endings of novels, but I will say this, that the way you chose to end or the, the final part of this novel really kind of made a huge impression on me. I think it's in a very, very fundal, fundamental way. It goes to emotions about hopes and fears and <coughs> desires for a particular kind of world. And that, I think, is also true, Hania, for some of the other little sections. There's, uh, in the one section, there's a... Uh, Percival, who's sort of going through the ice and snow to save somebody, and then you have two little twin boys in New York that, are, you know, there's a lot of emotional investment by us as readers. Um, is there a dilemma for you as a writer that you sometimes you break our hearts with what we have to go through, with what we're investing in those characters, and we know somehow that our hopes are not going to be fulfilled? No, I mean, I think I'm. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think I'm ultimately a tragedian. I, you know, I, I think you, you know, creative, create, you know, creators are ultimately tragedians or not. And um, but you know, again, the point I think of any kind of of work of, of fiction, the last thing you want to hear um, from a reader is, well, that was okay. You want to elicit strong reactions, and, um, and I don't have any problems being over the top. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse. Um, I think we have a questioner right at the top on the left. Is that somebody there? Yes. Oh, sorry, on the right. Me? Hello. Um, I just wanted to know how you practically go about writing so something so long and complex. How, do you plan or do you start free writing in the beginning? Uh, well, thank you for the question. I have no idea where any... I mean, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't <laughs> see you or I'd be... Oh, there you are, okay. Um, I, I, I don't outline. I sort of have a running Microsoft Word document where I just write down sort of scraps, bits and pieces. But I know the structure and then I start. And this is true for a little life as well that the structure was very clear to me, and then you're just, you know, you're kind of filling in the blanks. There was, there's an American writer, maybe it was Robert Stone, I have no idea, who actually has a great metaphor for this. He said that writing is like, um, 
is like, is like driving all the way home in the dark with only your headlights to guide you. And he said, it's a very slow drive, but you find your way home. And I think that's a very, that's a beautiful metaphor. I mean, I always know what the ending will be. And so if you know the beginning and you know the end, there's a lot of ways to get there. And obviously a lot of detours you can take, but, it, but you know how you're going to end up home. Thanks. Thanks. Are there a lot of side paths that get discarded along the way? Not really. I mean, I, I, I work through a lot of them, but, um, but once they're on, on, on the screen, they're, they're pretty much there. Okay, let's go to the front on the left here. Oh, I can see you. Hi, thank you. I, I loved A Little Life and I loved thank To Paradise. Um, I just wanted to ask about the missing mothers in, in the narrative into Paradise. Yeah. Why were they missing and, and what does that say? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, it, it, you know, when you finished your third book, there are certain things that, certain themes and motifs that announce themselves to you that you only realize when you're done. And that's one of them. There are no mothers in any of my books. There are a lot of grandparents. I don't, I mean, I, there are no obvious explanations. Um, and I often think it would be more interesting to have, you know, psychologists um, <clears throat> sit down with you afterwards and explain the book to you rather than your editor. But, um, <laughs> who have no idea what they're talking about. But, but I, I don't know why. You know, I was not close to my grandparents. Um, I had no real relationship with them and nor did I particularly feel I needed one. Um, I have a good relationship with my mother. Uh, you know, the simple answer is maybe I'm not a mother myself and I know interest in becoming a mother, but I, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, there, and that is the mystery, I think, of, of creating sort of serial pieces that, um, that it is not until readers point them out to you that you think they're right and I wonder why that's so. And then you give unsatisfying answers like this. <laughs> uh, middle left over there. Uh, hi. Um, hi. I just wanted to ask, a lot of your, in fact, all of your books have uh, queer relationships between men and some of which are framed quite traumatically. Recently, there's been a movement called the Own, movement, Own Voices Movement, and I wondered why you chose to start to tell the story of queer men, given that that's something you haven't experienced, and if that was something that you thought you could add to that narrative that they couldn't have? You know, I, I think that a, a writer should be able to write about anybody. And I think that, you know, again, this is another one, in part it's another one of these questions where I don't know the answer. I really don't. And I asked my best friend, who's also my first reader, why he thought um, th there were so many gay male relationships in, in, in my second two books, not in the first. And he said, I don't know. And <laughs> I, I, I don't really know. Um, and I, I do think, though, that writing about otherness is something that is not only um, an artist's right, but I would even argue an artist's responsibility. If you live in a, 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 a diverse, and you can define this term however you wish, country as I do, even if you're living within a very homogenous community, you are going to be encountering the lives of someone who's different from you, whether by gender or by ethnicity or by ability or by, or by, or by class. And part of what the artist is supposed to do is project themselves into another person's life. We recently had um, in, in the magazine uh, an, a profile 
uh, about the American playwright Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, and who's one of my artistic heroes. And he was asked the same thing by, by our interviewer. Uh, and he was, you know, because he had just written the um, screenplay for West Side Story. And he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, you know, I, I refuse to think that there is any sort of violence or harm in me inhabiting another voice, because one of the things that art can uniquely do in this day and age is offer empathic flights into the, into the minds and lives of another. Hi, um, thank you so much for coming, first of all. Um, just to give a bit of a context to my question, I adore your books and your stories, thank and you. I actually only recently came across you from recommendation from a friend about six months ago, and since then, A Little Life has become my favourite book ever. And I, I feel like I have to do the good work and I love to share the story and to tell people, please read this book. And I know it's a super dark story, but whenever I say to people, what's it about? So it's the most beautiful story because I think it is truly beautiful. So for my question for you is not what's your favourite book, but what is that book for you in terms that you just love to share and recommend to others? The Remains of the Day. I mean, oh. <laughs> that's the book I wish I could have written, you know? And it is, it is a perfect novel. I mean, it is, it's so subtle. I mean, I think what I really admire about Ishiguro's work is that the sentences are very simple. The language is very simple. There's a real economy of language, which obviously I'm not capable of doing. And uh, there's, there, there's a real discipline. But within a book like that, there's such there's such a great subtlety, and you know, and even in little things like sometimes Stevens is Stevens the the butler who's the narrator of of the book slips up in his grammar. He says me instead of I a, a couple of times, and so you really understand that here is someone who has created a kind of persona, but then the author understands that act of creation. Uh, and, and doesn't judge him for it, but but has a great deal of empathy for him. And and a book like that is a very very hard and subtle thing to write. And talking about poignant endings, uh, his new novel Clara, I thought was yeah. just it, that ending just stayed with me forever. Yeah. Let's um, yeah. go here. Hi. Hi. Um, having survived reading a little life, and then <laughs> <laughs> and then the rolling pandemics, as you say, of to paradise. What fresh hell do you have in store for us next? <laughs> Well, thank you very much for reading it and for that lovely compliment. Uh, um, you know, I, I really don't know. I, I, it, I'm sort of in this, I, I'm in the kind of fallow period where you sit around and wait. Um, and it's, you know, it's like you're just, you're just, um, you're, you're waiting for some, I'm waiting for something to announce itself to me. But I, I do know that whatever I do next, it is going to have to be structurally different and, um, and, and it's going to have to feel difficult in a way. You know, I had an idea, but it takes so much research, and I thought, do I really want to do this? I mean, one of the, the things about, the great things about fiction is making things up, and one of the great things about subverting history is that you don't have to really study it that much. So, <laughs> it's a lot of laziness, so we'll see, but thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, right over here. I just want to echo what my, uh, the, the girl who was up here before said, uh, just an absolute privilege to be with you tonight. Thank One of my favourite authors, and I'm, I'm so happy to be here. My question is about To Paradise, and the first book in particular. To what extent is it a lament that the United States went down the path that they went down to unify very, very different people 
And to what extent do you sort of look at where the United States is now and you think, well, does it really make sense that it's still one country? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, God, I, I, I feel I'm the wrong person to ask. You know, you need to ask a political historian here. But I think you're right. This is one of these kind of remarkable and charged moments in American history when I think many people along the political spectrum have thought, does this really work? You know, if the central unifying mythology or romance of America is supposed to be, A, that it's a haven, and B, that out of extraordinarily different perspectives, you can have a single united country, if that doesn't work anymore, if, that ro if not, enough, not enough people believe in that romance, can a country sustain itself? Um, and I, I think that's probably, I would imagine, a great fear um, and a great unspoken fear among many Americans. Uh, you mentioned Tony Kushner before. I, I did read somewhere that there were at attempts to bring a little life to the screen, yes. but that you pushed back against certain changes. That What, what, was, what was the problem? Well, uh, this, this has been going on for years, and I just don't think it's ever going to happen. So, I, I mean... <laughs> but I, we got close at a couple of, of networks, at HBO and Hulu, but you get these really inane notes from the studio, the network executives, and I've said this before, but at different speeches, but one of the notes was, can you make it more like Sex in the City? And I just thought, <laughs> and you know, not even Sex in the City is like Sex in the City anymore. <laughs> and if you interpret that note generously, you think maybe they're saying, can you have more scenes with the four guys? That's easy to do. But it, you, I would go to some meetings, and the notes were so, um, showed such a bizarre, um, it, it, you know, not even misunderstanding, but a bizarre um, reluctance to accept the book as it was. Uh, that I just thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm, I'm not going to. Then I think it just becomes about buying intellectual property. Um, I don't know if any of you work in TV, but there was, some, there was a day, you know, on Monday they called them books, and the next day they ever started calling them IP. So there's just this, this desire to buy more IP. And I thought, well, I don't need this. I'm not going to do it. I, the, so the only, you know, kind of interpretive rights I've granted is to Evo for the play. Okay. There's, of course, no reason why an, art form in this, uh, an artwork in this form needs to exist in any other form, right? Well, I had a conversation with um, with um, with HBO, and you know, they said, "Well, what would you do?" And I said, "Well, I would either take the first part of the book and make it an anthology series." And they said, "Well, you know, historical fiction doesn't sell, or if historical TV doesn't sell." And I said, "Well, what about Bridgerton?" And they said, "Well, that's different." <laughs> and then I then they said, "They said, well, what about the third part?" And I said, "I think the third part would work really well, but..." I want a Hawaiian actor. I want, I want the casting to be racially true. And if you can't get Hawaiian actors, I want Polynesian actors. And this will only really make sense if you've read the third part of the book. They were very pleased with themselves, and they said, what about The Rock? <laughs> so they wanted The Rock to play the scientist who ages in the book from sort of 45 to 85. And I said, well... I don't think that's really going to work, and they look really crestfallen. <laughs> so I don't think this is ever going to happen either. <laughs> I think we're going to squeeze in one more question from the front here. Hi there. So Hi. I'm reading to, uh, to Paradise at the moment, very much enjoying it. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed about it um, 
while reading it that you've mentioned is having to work for that ending and um, that, you know, you've said the need to, uh, to challenge the reader. And uh, one of the things that I've, uh, you know, heard from friends and family when they recommend books or series is, oh, you'll love the author. It's, you know, they make it so easy to read. You know, you can, you can, the, the pages just fly by in a night. And I was wondering what value you place on challenging uh, the reader and how you can reach that balancing point of, of making it sort of, you know, difficult but rewarding, but not too difficult. Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. You know, you don't want to be Roberto Bolaño. I mean, no disrespect to Roberto Bolaño. Do you know who this is? Yeah, he's, I mean, it, but, but, this, but he's an intentionally challenging, challenging author. But I do think that you can never go wrong as an author or any kind of, of, of artist um, it, trusting the reader or the viewer's intelligence. I think ultimately, especially fiction readers, they go into the book, as I said at the beginning, willing to surrender, willing to trust, willing to follow. And as long as you create a logical universe that makes sense, I think the reader is, is, is able to, wants to take, and this is certainly true for me as a reader, certain leaps of faith um, and, and, and to be enthralled. And certainly the, the difficult thing, obviously, is you want that universe to be logical and unto itself. You want it to make sense unto itself. And you want to let the reader know that he's in good hands. So you want the reader to know that there is going to be some kind of payoff. And I don't mean an emotional payoff necessarily, but that what he's invested in is going to make sense in some kind of way. And the other thing that I think that, that a writer in particular has to do is that the writer, a book, a fictional book should not be answering questions. It should be helping the reader ask questions that they didn't know how to articulate for themselves. Or to how to, it should be presenting him with the idea of an emotion that he didn't know he had or he didn't know he felt. And if a book can do that, then I think it's a successful book. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for all your lovely questions. Uh, Hania will be available to sign copies of the books that you have purchased of To Paradise. Um, and all that remains is for me to say Godspeed for those who are voting tomorrow. And thank you very much, Hania Yanagihara. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go to swf.org.au for more great content.